and why we invested so much in sequencing that genome and finding all of those disease-causing variants and building the infrastructure to deliver that information. The promise is now that we can develop genetic medicines uh, that actually target the sequence that's changed in a person with the disease directly. Hey everyone, I'm so excited to share my interview today with Dietrich Steffen with you. He is the CEO and co-founder of Nubase, a biotech startup that just went public less than three years since its inception using technology that it spun out of CMU to help come up with solutions, medical treatments and therapies to some of the nastiest genetic diseases out there. Dietrich and I also discuss the impact on our society from the Human Genome Project, the staggering rate that the cost of gene sequencing has fallen in the last two decades. I learned so much. This is Dietrich's 14th biotech startup. He has also been influential in stimulating the local biotech ecosystem, has raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So much wisdom to share. Here is my conversation with Dietrich Steffen. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off, I figured that you were someone who could, I've heard of the Human Genome Project. I'm, I'm aware kind of like, you know, through maybe like an NPR report or something of like what it is, but as I was reflecting on it, coming to this conversation, it seems like one of those things that is hard to appreciate the significance in terms of moving, the potential to move an industry forward. And it's uh, a project that at least to some degree um, is part of the origin story of your company, Newbase. So I wanted to start there uh, to see if you could just contextualize for people, maybe at the very base, just what the Human Genome Project was and why it was so transformational. So in order to answer that question, I need to provide some context. And so I'll start there. So first point is every human disease is genetic. Either you acquire some genes from mom or dad that are misbehaving in some way, or there's an environmental insult that changes your genes. Think cancer and gives rise to disease. But so it's like a pollutant entering and then the genes are altered in some... Exactly. Um, but sort of Point one is every single disease is, is driven either entirely or in part by a change in your genome or changes in your genome. Um, now, the way people have been treating disease historically is not at the genetic level. Um, you know, genes code for proteins, which do all the work in cells. And so uh, because we didn't understand the human genome and all six billion letters of it that every cell in your body has and how it goes awry to cause disease, the way we would try and treat diseases is just take disease cells and start pouring random chemicals on them, you know, millions of different random chemicals, and hope that a couple of them stick and a couple of those might have the activity you want in terms of making that protein behave better total random screening. So this is actually called high throughput screening, but it's more random. Um, and then once you have a couple of those chemicals that 
do what you hope they do on those proteins and don't make the cells worse. Then you engage generally in a decade-long multi-billion dollar chemical engineering effort that results in one drug. And oh, by the way, nine out of 10 of those efforts fail. Uh, so drug development has been extremely slow, extremely expensive, and it's why drugs are so expensive out in the world today is because these big pharma companies have to recoup all of that money. And it all comes down to the fact that we had no idea which chemical was going to stick to which protein. We couldn't model that. We couldn't understand that interaction. So we had to go broad. So the dream of the Human Genome Project was to actually first sequence the six billion letter genetic code in a healthy individual as the reference sequence or the blueprint of life. Four letters, A, C, G, T, arranged in different combinations across six billion letters in every single one of the trillions of cells in your body. So a lot of information, but think of it as nature's digital information encoding system. And so we finally, in 2001, after billions of dollars of investment by the public and private sector, got that sequence. What people don't really understand is what's happened in the intervening 20 years, which is it wasn't enough to just have the hard drive with a six billion letter sequence on it. What you really want to understand is how that sequence differs in people with various diseases, right? We're, we're trying to understand which genes drive disease. And so there was a massive global effort to sift through the genetic blueprints of people with and without diseases, find out what was systematically different, and put those in databases. And so now on your laptop at home, you can go into the human genome mutational database and figure out what mutations in that code cause cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy or whatever disease you're interested in. And then what we had to do was build the national infrastructure to be able to take a sample from me or you, send it somewhere, and have that place report back to us what change we have in which gene that might be triggering our disease. It's not enough to know in the abstract that some mutation causes some disease. You have to personalize it so that you've now connected the loop. Uh, so if I have some symptoms, let's say I've got a cardiac arrhythmia, I can take a saliva sample, send it out to a San Francisco-based diagnostics company, and a week later, they'll give me a piece of paper, or it'll pop up in my email and say, you have this mutation in this gene. And that's an accessible fee, which is also just in and of itself to, to talk macro for a second. The first human genome project, an enormous cost. And I, I believe I've seen that. I could be wrong. But the rate at which that cost has fallen is actually faster than Moore's Law, Correct. which is about the, the acceleration of computing power, which is just staggeringly... Uh, fast, but making it accessible. Absolutely. So, I mean, literally that first sequence cost billions of dollars and close to a decade to unravel. And now in less than a day and a half, you can sequence an entire human genome for less than $1,000, much less than $1,000 and have all of that information ported right back to you. So yes, the cost curve is exceeding Moore's law. But just to sort of reconnect the dots to your initial question, so retrospectively, we had no idea what the genome sequence was or how it related to diseases. Would it, would it be safe to say then basically that like what you just said, every disease is genetic before that we wouldn't have even been able to say that? Exactly. I think that's correct. Well, we, we could say that diseases were hereditary, meaning, you know, the kids of people with diseases had a higher probability of having that disease. And... 
those measures of heritability pointed to genetic underpinnings. Sorry if that's too technical, no, but, that's... but we had no idea what the genes were that caused those diseases. And now we know. Gotcha. So, and we've had that information and now we can give it to individual patients. And so the promise now on a go forward basis um, and why we invested so much in sequencing that genome and finding all of those disease causing variants and building the infrastructure to deliver that information, the promise is now that we can develop genetic medicines uh, that actually target the sequence that's changed in a person with a disease directly as opposed to trying to fiddle with high throughput random screening at the protein level. We just go in, tame that misbehaving gene, forms a normal protein, forms a normal cell, forms a normal person. And that's the era that, that we're in right now that promises truly scalable and efficient solutions for people that are suffering. Wow. So I, I want to kind of take this back to the new base story and even to your story specifically. So if the LinkedIn profile is to be trusted, um, you were uh, the chair of the Pitts Department of Human Genomics, and there is a kind of correlation point with um, you giving up that chairship and starting new base. So that sounds like the, the kind of stew of a catalyzing event. Can you put a little bit more color on that picture? Sure, sure. I feel like I've had two separate careers that have somehow at one point become entangled and most recently become disentangled again. And so I started life as a uh, academic researcher, so writing grants to fund my academic labs and publishing papers on what we observed out there in the world. I mean, that's what scientists do. They try and understand the world around them and communicate that to build a foundation of knowledge. But next to and in, in parallel to that have always had a passion for then taking those new insights and trying to drive them into the marketplace to actually help people. Put another way, we would find a broken gene that caused, you name it, Alzheimer's disease. And we'd write a paper on it, and then it would just sort of float out into the ether, and there was no downstream connectivity to the real world. And so at some point, I'd like to say I had my first existential crisis where it was like, why am I doing this? You know, and it and it came back to the fact that I was doing it so that I could offer that information to someone who was suffering from Alzheimer's disease to get a diagnosis or to be able to take advantage of a new therapy built on that new information. And so while sort of running academic programs would always actively push this information out into the marketplace by trying to partner with big pharma companies and say, hey, you got to look at this. You know, this is important. Put it into your drug development pipeline. Or by spinning out a new company that was focused on building a new diagnostic or therapeutic in that area. And and eventually, I, um, you know, I came back to Pittsburgh to build the infrastructure here in Pittsburgh to support that translation and commercialization. Uh, and we can talk about what that infrastructure is, but took a holding position as chair of genetics um, here at the university while I was building that infrastructure. And eventually when that job was done, jumped back into the private sector and, and I'm focused now on on uh, building new base. Can you just delineate the infrastructure that you're talking about and then also 
Nubase almost like seems like its own form of infrastructure for this type of development. So can you just help delineate those two for me? Yeah. So if you go to places like Boston and San Francisco and now San Diego, what you see are incredible universities. I mean, think of Boston, Harvard and MIT sort of smushed up together in Cambridge. All of those smart Science, academic scientists are shouting Eureka all day long, every day. And what has arisen next to them are people with money, i.e. venture capitalists. And so the scientists will run across the street and say, hey, I have a new idea for a new drug or a new diagnostic. Give me some money and we'll start a new company and then help me hire people that know how to build a company. And that whole ecosystem of startup in biotech has really been, it was birthed in Boston here in the U.S. and then migrated to San Francisco, and it's reached a, a sophisticated state. In Pittsburgh, we have we have that exact constellation of universities where people are shouting Eureka every day. There's little investment capital in the biotech area and little expertise in building companies. And so I worked for about five years to set up a place, which is here in the South Side, that Young scientists can, or any scientist can go and say, hey, I've got an idea. Help me figure out if it's a good idea. Get me the capital. Get me the expertise and let's start a new company. And I've, I've sort of released that back to the university and hopefully that will flourish here. Uh, but that wasn't my life's you know, passion to build that infrastructure. It was, uh, I think, just a necessary piece of infrastructure to unlock real solutions for patients here in Pittsburgh. So Newbase was one of those companies that was spun out of a scientist lab at Carnegie Mellon University who had a good idea. Uh, and we came around it, uh, got the capital. So we've raised about $100 million in financing and built a team around it, which you see around you here in the office, to basically take that idea and turn it into real medicines. One other aside, and I'm sorry if I'm being too long-winded here. The beauty of the podcast format is that it is a medium that lends itself to high-context, long-form storytelling, so you are doing a fantastic job. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I had the pleasure and honor of sitting down with the president of the National Academy of Engineering down in Washington, D.C., and you know there are various national academies. There's a National Academy of Medicine, of science of engineering. And I forget how I talked my way in to see him, but he had a very simple message for me. And I, I'm not sure how we got to that part in the conversation, but it's always stuck with me and is, I think, really telling of why academic research is different than commercialization. It's scientists look at the world around them, try and understand it and communicate it. Engineers and artists and entrepreneurs create something that the world has never seen before. And it's an absolutely different endeavor, fundamentally different. In many ways, you see universities try and facilitate commercialization, but they can never really do it because it's not their core business. It's a different muscle. Totally different muscle, different people, different language, different incentives. What universities need to do better is to let the technology flow out. They can't think everything's the crown jewels and lock it down. And they have to just be open about it. Uh, I remember when I was a scientist, that was all the dark side. Industry is the dark side. All those people are bad people. Dirty Money's bad. Exactly. 
It's like, no, you know, um, they're trying to do something different. It's as simple as that. That's the part that we've been missing here in Pittsburgh and what I've always focused on in terms of infrastructure building and now what I'm trying to do by way of example uh, here in our region. So we've spoken with Craig Markovitz at CMU about university technology transfer. So it sounds like getting to new base here, found this researcher who kind of had developed or uncovered the underpinning technology. And then in some way, shape or form, university technology transfer allows that to come out of an academic setting and start to be commercialized. Is that accurate so far? That's correct. Yes. So take me through not only what you saw, but what the market now sees as a publicly traded company that makes this such a compelling opportunity. Within the university, there was a scientist who has been working on this core chemistry for quite a while. It, it was his core focus area. There is a lot of early research that he did that promised that these could be used to treat genetic diseases. And so over the course of interacting with that scientist and learning about the theoretical potential of these, I, I got quite excited about it. And so ultimately what we did is together went to the university's technology transfer office and said, hey, what would it take to get a license uh, to the inventions from this investigator's lab? And so they outlined sort of a set of terms, financial terms, that a company would need to meet in order to get an exclusive license to that intellectual property. And so we said, okay, uh, sounds good. Booted up a company, took a license, an exclusive license, and on the back of that, we're able to finance the company. Now, uh, a key point here is that the theoretical potential of a technology is very different than the application of that technology in the marketplace, and that's where the risk comes in and risk capital and everything else. So but what you're saying is in one of these like Boston-like environments is if you have a base of investors who are finely attuned to specifically biotechnology investments, the number one, they're going to have the best tool set of anyone to understand those risks, potentially work with you to de-risk. Because that's really actually, when you're working through a startup, you're de-risking step by step as you go through the process. And in addition to help you actually navigate the regulatory challenges and the hiring challenges that come along with that. Absolutely. Well said. And, and it's a different type of investor than an investor who likes tech or whatever it is, uh, retail goods. So there, there's a different arc and a different set of de-risking activities, uh, for lack of a better word, that needs to come around to biotech. And so it's a finely honed skill to be a biotech investor and understand how across a portfolio you can actually make money. I mean, what we're talking about is, you know, one of the hardest things to do is like take the most complex machine we've ever encountered in the universe, the human body, and say, okay, well, that's broken. I'm going to fabricate something that's going to fix it. I'm going to go in and there's a whole regulatory oversight that you alluded to, to make sure that not only do you not hurt people, but you actually help them. It's hugely expensive. It's, it takes a long time, but the benefits are enormous. These companies don't make money for the first 10 years of their existence generally. So how do you value them? I mean, it's just a different skill. So you, you've basically, it's, it's funny because we just recorded with Jonathan, so the listeners will be a week apart, but for me, it's ours. And you use that exact same metaphor of the most complex system or the most complex structure you can put together. And it just clicked for me. It, it's obviously so plainly obvious to you, but for me, 
you know, someone who might have the skills as an auto mechanic or the skills of constructing a building, that's still something that has been designed, conceived of from the human mind. And so its starting point is within the bounds of the human mind, whereas we didn't design our bodies. It was, you know, not something that we kind of had an active role in in shaping to a significant degree. So it is to some degree unbounded by that otherwise mental constraint of a human. So well said. I used to use that exact analogy, which is we didn't come with an owner's manual or a schematic diagram. And in fact, in many ways, the Human Genome Project was the first step in that direction. Okay, now we've got a a sequence that encodes for the instructions for how to build it, but we still don't know how to build it from the instruction manual. It's just the first step, if that makes sense. I mean, you couldn't take a genetic sequence and ever extrapolate all of the steps that had to go from that to a living, breathing human being. We're just correlating the sequence to a person that has a disease. That's as far as we've gotten. So I want to change lanes a little bit. We're still talking about Nubase. But uh, like you said, these companies don't make money for a long period of time, 10 years sometimes, often. You and Nubase just went public in April of 2021, despite the fact that this company was brought together in the beginning of 2018 or approximately 2018. We've had a number of other preclinical biotechnology startups on this show before, and they are all still in some way, shape, or form private enterprises. Can you help me to understand, number one, just it's, it's a decision to even try to go public, but it's also a, uh, a, a marker of the appetite from some segment of investors out there to potentially participate. There's, there's a reason that multi-billion dollar asset under management hedge funds don't go investing in like the seed stage of tangential consumer app companies. There just isn't the right kind of trade-offs based off of the incentives of their structure. So can you help me understand why Nubase is a publicly traded company, whereas similar aged preclinical biotechnology firms might not be? I've had a lot of experience building companies uh, out in the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley and Boston, the traditional path has been a founder, usually at an academic institution, walk across the street to a venture capital firm, pitches it. In a minority of cases, they'll get a check and a company will be founded. And that VC will bring the money, but they will also essentially take control of the company for the purposes of de-risking it, as we talked about before. So they'll seat the board, they'll seat the management, they'll keep the reins pretty tight um, and maximize for... Um, a liquidity event at some point in the future. And usually their fund life is 10 years, and so they want to get their money back out within that 10-year time frame at most. So, And that's all geared to a founder that's never done it before and recognizing it's a different skill, as we just discussed. And so it makes sense for first-time founders. Now, after having done it a dozen-plus times, you learn the boilerplate of how to build a biotech company and de-risk it. You don't need that skill set that the VC brings anymore. And thus, you question, well, why would I give them control over the company then if, if, if I know how to do this? Essentially, you're injecting more risk because they don't know the substance of what you're building as well as you do. So if you bring both the management expertise and all of the tricks of the trade to company building with the scientific expertise, it's actually more risk to take VC money. Um, And by the way, every every tranche of uh, money you take from venture capitalists comes with a massively dilutive event. So by the time 
you ever sell that company or take it public, the people that founded it or are putting their blood, sweat, and tears into it have a fraction of what the VCs have collectively. So in this instance, I wasn't willing to do that again. And so we decided actually right at founding to take the company public. And, And let me take a half step back. So how do the VCs get their money out? The primary routes are either sell the company to another bigger company and get a check and return your fund or take the company public. And once the stock is liquid, it can be freely traded on the open market and they can take their money back out. So the game, and it really is a game that has emerged, is build these companies up and then you, the VCs apply what I call purple haze, which is basically a brand halo, which says, oh my gosh, if Sequoia Capital thinks that's a good company, it must be a good company. And then, you know, the IPO balloons, the VCs generally take their money out, and then management is left to support the stock in the, in the aftermarket. And there's even a hype cycle there where like some certain firms are like, well, if they invested, then we'll invest. So like in terms of sequential rounds, you don't want to oversimplify, but can be like part of the basis of their due diligence. It's the game. Yeah. That's the game. And, and, and that is also predicated on a concept that the venture capitalist somehow knows that that company is better than the, the person who founded it which to me doesn't make any sense because the person who founded it is the one who understands the theoretical potential of the company much better than passive investor, I would think. Maybe that's, maybe that's a stretch, but the notion that a passive investor would credentialize me somehow in my judgment always rubbed me the wrong way. At Newbase, it was plain as day what the potential was, and we had no need for the expertise that those early stage investors brought. And in fact, it seemed like an anchor in terms of giving up control, being buried under layers of preferred, you know, financings and so forth. And quite frankly, it was demotivating to after five to seven to 10 years of work that our team would emerge with just a sliver of ownership. So we said, forget that model. We're going to do something differently. But you still need capital to make this happen. You have to get money to make this happen. And so... What we strategically decided to do was at founding in essentially in July of 2019, we took the company public on NASDAQ concurrent to raising a seed round of financing, roughly $20 million. And we used that. I mean, it was nothing. We had no operating history, no offices, no nothing. Um, We used that money to build the plane while we were flying it essentially sort of a design build process so we got some incubator space we hired a half dozen people we set up a wet lab produced our first data set and concurrently we socialized the story with all the public market investors we've probably had three or four hundred unique investor meetings over the last two or so years since we were founded and went public and what percentage of those are you all of them that's intense yeah, you got to be willing to put the work in, right? Right. So nothing comes for free. But once again, the illegibility of a career like this, that's not something that I think is widely appreciated with the role that you play if this company is public. And, you know, it's not like we just post it once. Here's the thesis. Hope you like it. It's repeated rounds of questioning, honing the pitch in order to make this happen. Absolutely. And then clawing our way to real progress in terms of data 
build conviction that we're going to get into the clinic with our first program, and then we're going to get into our next five programs, and then in 10 years, 20 programs, or whatever whatever the trajectory is, like there's a constant narrative that needs to be bolstered with data and real progress to build confidence in the public market investors. And, and it's a whole different dance than getting VCs into a company, which is its own unique skill set. And we can touch on that if you'd like, but um, there's a whole different dance there that's fascinating as well. So I, I, I want to get there, but I, I want to just make sure that by now, I, I feel like we've, we've gone in so many interesting directions. I just want to make sure that it's completely legible for folks. What Newbase is doing right now, which is developing solutions aimed at Huntington's disease and myotonic dystrophy, which you can explain a little bit more about how that works and what that entails. And then that can kind of help us give an entree into where things are going. Because like you said, there's a kind of limited range of, of current treatments, but that aperture should be widening with the passage of time. Yeah, no, thank you. So we're about two, we're a little less than two years old in terms of our operating history. We've raised about $100 million in the public markets. We've got 30 people on our team now. We just moved into some beautiful space here in Pittsburgh that we're very proud of. Hell of a view. Uh, beautiful view of the river and the city. I mean, world class. Um, and we are working on three different disease programs, all of which are purely genetic diseases. First is a disease called Huntington's disease, which is one of those diseases you never want to get close to. Basically, around midlife, if you have the misbehaving gene, your brain starts to die and you slowly begin to lose the ability to walk and then talk and then think. And then you die because your brain dies and there's nothing you can do about it. And oh, by the way, half of your kids will carry the affected gene as well. They know what's queued up for them. And there are these agonizing decisions about whether to get tested or not and know the future and uh, not being able to do anything about it. The second disease is myotonic dystrophy. It's a disease where affected individuals carry a gene that has a mutation in it. They suffer from muscular issues like myotonia or an inability to relax after contraction, muscle weakness and wasting, cardiac conduction defects, cognitive deficits, and they generally die early. And then a form of cancer uh, caused by a, a, an oncogene called KRAS. 30% um, of all cancers are caused by mutations in this gene, and there are no effective therapies for the most common mutations in this gene. So think about pancreatic cancer as an example. I mean, you get pancreatic cancer, you're going to die. And that's because this gene has historically been, quote unquote, undruggable. So those are the three things we're working on, each of which has a misbehaving gene that we're targeting. And we make medicines that actually look like a tiny little gene. So it, if you think back to high school biology, you know, you've got the DNA double helix that looks like a, a ladder. Uh, where the rungs of the ladder are A, C's, G's, and T's, and it's a double helix because there are two strands that mesh and form the rungs. And then you twist it, and that's why, that's why it's a helix. So if you rip that DNA helix in half, think about sawing down the middle of the rungs of a ladder, pulling those two backbones apart, and snipping them to be very short, what you have is a backbone with some A, C's, G's, and T's on it. And that's what our medicines look like, period. Now, the chemistry is what makes them special, but we can let them loose, and we've shown we can do this in animal models of each of those three diseases, you know, simple subcutaneous injection, 
and they get into every cell and every tissue, and they're like heat-seeking missiles. They sort of query the genome, find their perfect match, and then they stick. And when they stick, they stick really tightly. And they only like to stick to the broken gene. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So, so that you literally just now answered the exact question that I was excited to ask. So it basically can identify where that is inappropriate. And then the cell or the, the, the genes itself are also sophisticated enough to be like, actually, I'd prefer to have the one that's not broken as opposed to this broken one. Exactly. So what happens is, you know, there's a concept called complementary base pairing. And, and again, digging deep back into high school biology, A's like to hydrogen bond to T's. G's like to hydrogen bond to C's. And so based on the sequence that you plug into the drug, there is only one place in the 6 billion letter genome that that drug will stick perfectly. And so, it, I mean, it just brings up unbelievable questions like how does it query every location in the genome and find where it's supposed to stick? And what if it's nine out of 10 positions? How does it rip itself back off again? But somehow it does. So all of that sort of stuff that has to happen before you get perfect target engagement happens. And then you've got a lock on the misbehaving gene, essentially. So that gene is taken out of action, meaning it, it can't be copied into what's called a messenger RNA, and that can't be translated into a disease-causing protein. But remember, you also have a second copy of that gene from your other parent, and hopefully that one's still functioning well and can do what it's supposed to do to maintain normal function. So you've gotten rid of the insult, but you still have a backup. I'm glad people like you are working on stuff like that. Sounds basically like magic. Also alluded to if you've done the venture-backed path a couple times, there is a, th a thumbprint for the development of a biotechnology company. I think the most valuable thing for the audience generally would be a summary of that notion, just in terms of, you know, to use, uh, I'm, I'm very uh, more attuned to like a B2B SaaS type of company. So you need the technical lead who can actually build the software product. You need a business function that number one, can sales and market its way into actually getting into other, other companies' workflows. And you need a support uh, venture that can both help uh, those customers work through their problems and identify the bugs so that those can be passed on over to the engineering arm to get the thing solved. That's a gross oversimplification, but that's a, basically what we're aiming for here. And if you can build B2B SaaS platform with those three functions and they continue to lever each other up, you're in a great spot. So if we could attempt to paint a similar picture for these biotechnology companies generally. They have another game-changing technology. It seems like it would be the presupposition for any of this to work. But once that kind of breakthrough or, or potential breakthrough has been identified, what are those type of building blocks that are needed to assemble? It's a hard question to answer because in many ways, there are multiple flavors of these types of companies. Um, if I would try to get to some commonalities, the first is the technical lead or scientist who has developed hopefully a new platform technology that can output medicines that can address diseases in a different way and promise solutions where there was no solution before. I think an interesting nuance here is often with other companies, 
they're really like a big thing could just be we can do it for cheaper. And while that's still a yeah. case in bio, it seems like that's much less the issue and it's more we can get a better result. Even if it costs more now, even if it's way more expensive, there's a means of covering this. It's very much oriented around similar outcomes with less side effects or drastically better outcomes are the, the primary bellwether. I think that's right. I mean, there are so many diseases that we can't do anything about. And so even some incremental benefit or clinical improvement can be a multi-billion dollar drug. And then really the cost engineering happens when those solutions come off patent and a generics company comes in and basically just copies the molecule and offers it for cheaper. So, so it's less about cost on the front end and it's more about you know, how much better can you do at reducing suffering and death. So you need the technical lead. You need a source of capital, obviously, because this stuff is hugely expensive. When we go on our tour, you'll see a chemistry laboratory and a biology laboratory and big, huge million-dollar machines that sequence genes and you know make molecules. And that's very different than a capital-efficient build-out of, for example, a tech company where you need a laptop. A couple cups of coffee. <laughs> coffee and a laptop, exactly. <laughs> Food, ad libitum, coffee, and you're, you're set. And really, it's focused around sort of the, the laboratory-based activity until you hit a point where you begin to become a clinical stage company. And then you need a chief medical officer, you need regulatory experts, and it turns into a whole nother type of build-out where um, you're ensuring that it's safe in human beings in what's called a phase one trial. If it passes that gate, you have to show it's efficacious in humans in a small number of humans. That's called a phase two trial. If it passes that gate, you do a phase three trial. If, it, if it's safe and effective in a now a larger set of human beings, you might get approval. And then there's phase four or post-market surveillance where you make sure that no one out there in the world keels over for some unknown reason. And, and actually, there's a famous story. The drug Vioxx got pulled from market because of the phase four surveillance work. There were some cardiovascular issues and multi-billion dollar drug got pulled. So hugely expensive, hugely time consuming, different skill sets than what you just articulated. And I would love to just hang on the chief medical officer a little bit more because that's one that has up until this moment, I've remained befuddled. I think you might be able to help me. So there, there's the, the technical lead that's much more about engineering of the drug. And then my interpretation of the chief medical officer is they're doing some form of translation from a laboratory setting, an academic setting, into the clinic, which is where the doctors have their own whole wonderfully complex mode of operating. And where would this actually fit within their context of evaluation, recommendation, ongoing care? Is that is that kind of accurate or no? Absolutely. And so we, for example, we have this wonderful chief medical officer, Dr. Sandra Rojas-Caro. She reaches back into the science shop and looks at our molecules to say, okay, does that molecule perform from a pharmacologic perspective? Meaning if you give it at this dose via this route of administration, it has this effect. Get comfortable that that would translate forward into humans. And then similarly say, well, is it safe in this animal model at, at some higher dose? And what does the toxicology profile look like? Once she gets comfortable, all of that gets packaged up into what's called an IND application that goes to the FDA. And there are meetings with the FDA to run them through this data, literally 
at, at the at the at the level of sort of experiments and data elements and everything and and then they'll i mean we're talking about people right putting weird new things into people is what we're talking about so this is very sophisticated and disciplined work and then once the fda reviews that ind application has the meeting they'll say okay we feel comfortable you can go into a dozen patients or a dozen healthy volunteers at some low dose, uh, maybe it's a dose escalation study, and we just want to make sure that nothing bad happens. And so the CMO will oversee all of that work. They'll also be responsible for enrolling the patients at various sites. Um, once that gate is finished, there's another meeting, there's another application, it goes to the phase two trial, and there there's usually multiple clinical sites enrolling patients with the disease, and you've got to be able to communicate to those people why we think this is going to work, why it's not dangerous. And sometimes they'll have other options of trials to to go into. All of that gets led by the chief medical officer, culminating in approval to go to market, a new drug approval, NDA. Man, I feel like I could ask you questions to infinity, but I want to, I want to be respectful of your time. So my last question before we ask our, our last sequence of questions is around a concept that maybe I tangentially was aware of. I first like it first felt clarity to me associated with the whole COVID thing and this record setting development and approval of vaccines to be deployed in mass to people. One of the narratives that I saw come up was the concept of challenge trials, basically meaning short circuiting that multi-phase approach to the approval of vaccine. And if there were a contingent of willing informed volunteers who said, I understand that this has not been as rigorously tested as most of the vaccines that we'd be willing to put in our body, but because of the stakes at a societal level, I'm willing to take that risk, eyes wide open, as a, a usually a young, healthy person, go in, test this vaccine on me, and let's see what happens, short-circuiting that multiple-phase process. Basically, can you just articulate the kind of spectrum of the folks that will be the first humans on the front lines for trialing anything, assuming this not challenge trials, maybe that's like one kind of extreme end of the spectrum. Can you just talk about the folks who are between a rock and a hard place where if, the, you know, we're talking about treating Huntington's, they're already looking down the barrel of a really, really nasty thing. And you're able to come to sit, come to them and say, there's no guarantee that this will solve everything. But in the absence of other viable medical solutions, this is one of the alternative attempts. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that a fair? No, it's a great question. In these devastatingly severe diseases where there's literally nothing else available, think about, again, pancreatic cancer. I mean, you know there's nothing you can do generally. There I think is an interest on the part of patients, maybe heightened interest in exploring more experimental therapies and engaging in, in those conversations. Um, and of course, there's an interest on the part of the manufacturers of these medicines to help those people. Um, and the tension, the appropriate tension is still making sure that you're not ever doing any harm. Right. So how does that manifest? I think you begin to get into an area where you really need to be thoughtful, partner with the agencies, and just be hyper-communicative. So 
For example, our hope as we get into our myotonic dystrophy type 1 and Huntington's trials is that we can do what's called a combined phase 1-2 trial, where rather than enrolling all healthy individuals, there's all or part of the first humans actually have the disease. And so we hopefully concurrently or very quickly thereafter both show safety and efficacy to try and get hints of whether we can double down and move quickly into sort of a larger phase two or a phase three trial. And it makes sense that a regulatory body would be likely to approve something like that because of the stakes. It's not, there should be kind of almost like a different bar for, hey, you know, people that their eyebrows grow too fast or something that's like not so devastatingly high stakes, where if we can accelerate this in any way, alleviate any sort of suffering, it intuitively makes sense that there would be a somewhat different bar for how that's actually tested and brought to market. Is that is that a fair assessment or maybe not so much? Uh, you know, it's... <laughs> I think from from an intuitive and patient-centric perspective, I understand that mindset. I think from a from the perspective of a company that's trying to always make sure that we're safe and then efficacious and probably for, and I can't obviously speak for any any anyone besides me and the company, but I I could imagine that they also want to make sure that they're not harming people first and and also then on top of that, ensuring that there's some modicum of benefit. And so there's a there's a natural and I think a very healthy tension where, where everyone's really is trying to do the right thing, maybe coming at it from slightly different perspectives. Is it ever optimized? I don't know. It's probably never optimized in every single scenario. You know, I think the parties are aligned in, in getting to the end goal. Maybe the only the only folks in that triad that perhaps would be willing to take excessive risk would be those patients who have no other solutions. And, you know, I've seen that personally, but at the same time, could you imagine that the damage that could come from doing things incorrectly? So, yeah. Yeah. Dietrich, this has been awesome. I have learned so much and I really hope that at some point in the future, we can do it for a second time and you can teach me even more. Before we ask our standard last two questions to wrap up, uh, is there anything else you are hoping to share today that I just didn't give you the chance to? No, I would just say thank you for um, the honor of being on your podcast and also for, for what you do. As we talked about previously, I think the world is a really complicated place and giving young people exposure to various different areas so that they can find their passion more effectively is, is, is amazing. So. That's very kind, but the, the, the honor is all mine, and I hope that listeners will continue to follow along with everything you guys are doing. Um, what digital coordinates can we provide for people that want to learn more? Newbasetherapeutics.com. And then feel free to also reach out to me on LinkedIn personally and happy to continue the conversation with folks offline. Awesome. We're going to link that in the show notes. You can find it in the podcast app where you're probably listening to this right now or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. Before I let you go, Dietrich, I want to give you the mic one final time so you can issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. So my challenge would be, and this is a real life skill that I have to employ every single day, and I'd say it's the most important skill is, if there is someone out there in the world that you admire or you want to talk to for some reason, figure out how to do it. They're just people. You, you could not, that, that should be like the 
you know, front of, not that I'll ever write a book, but on the front of my book, that's literally the whole strategy is the world is so much smaller than you realize. It's so much more accessible than, than you realize. And there is even just something to the realization that they are just people. The deification of another human is cause all sorts of issues. And when you realize they're just, you know, live and breathe and thinking, trying to get, make that way through the day, even LeBron, we're all humans. Absolutely. Beautiful. Uh, well, this has been fantastic. Thank, Thank you so you. much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. We just went deep with Dietrich Steffen. Hope you're out there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dietrich. I hope you took a lot away. I know I did. And if you are interested in exploring more topics associated with biotech startups, I would encourage you to make sure you check out last week's episode with Jonathan Steckbeck. His company, Peptologics, is also bringing novel medical solutions to the marketplace. And Dietrich actually sits on the board for Jonathan's company, Peptologics. So check that out and hit subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.